0: So um, God is good. He is so good to us. And um, I've had this stirring in my heart. I've been studying this for quite some time now. But December is my favorite time. It's the most wonderful time of the year. No, I am not a singer. I might be a worshiper, but I am not a singer. So I will spare you. When Allie was little and I started singing to her, she used to cover my mouth. Don't do that, mama. <laughs> but if you want to open up to Luke chapter 1, I love, 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 love talking about Jesus, when he started, where he came from, his origins, all of it. And um, of course, the first Christmas verse in the Bible is Genesis three fifteen, when God told the serpent, he's going to strike your head a fatal blow. And actually, Jesus was even before Genesis 3 because he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. But when it comes to telling the Christmas story out of the word, which is what we do every year on Christmas Eve as a tradition, and when the kids were little, that, you know, we read the little kid version of the Christmas story, and now we read it out of the Bible, but um, Luke is my favorite. We're going to look at Matthew maybe next week, but Luke is my favorite. And I really want to just take a minute um and i this do maybe two or three weeks on the christmas story and uh this is kind of the prequel right <laughs> so this is the prequel to the christmas story we're just going to talk on of luke chapter one tonight but i really want to take take some time and look at it with a fresh set of eyes because sometimes we can read these things so many times how many of you read through the bible in a year I do also, so I have, I have read this story at least 25 times in my daily reading, you know, reading through the Bible in a year, and sometimes we can read these stories so many times that they, they're a little ho-hum, and we kind of, hmm, a little blah through it. And we just kind of read it because it's part of our thing or we, we don't kind of grasp the awe and the amazement that the writer intended when he wrote these stories and, and events for us to read all these years later. So I really just want us to, to look at it with a little bit of fresh set of eyes. And I was, as I was reading it, just some things stood out to me. So we're going to look at this. It's a historical account. The book of Luke was written by Luke, who was a physician. A very detailed person, he studied it, he studied these accounts, and he traveled with Paul, he talked to people who firsthand were parts of these accounts, so he has a really detailed look at it that you don't see in any of the other Gospels, so we want to look at his historical account, and we all know that history is his story, but it's not just his story, because his story is our story. And it's not just about what has happened. When we look at this historical account, we can see what God will do. Because he's the same yesterday, and t- yesterday today, and forever. And what he did, he will do. So when Luke was writing this, uh, it, it was to encourage. And when we read these Gospels and we read this history lesson tonight, it's supposed to encourage and strengthen our faith that God is faithful. And the theme of the whole book of Luke is God is faithful. You're going to see it over and over again. If you read through the whole book of Luke, you're going to see it in every chapter. God fulfills his word. God makes good on his promises. God is faithful. And so that's kind of the theme of the whole book of Luke. And I just want to read the first few verses to find out. And he says right off the bat what his purpose was. In verse 1, he says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So verse 1, we have it right there. God fulfills things. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. And so Luke's purpose in writing this book is he's writing it to a person with a purpose so that he could be certain of the truths that he was taught. And that is still very prevalent today because the church, you know, is its own people group. First, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile, right? Because God, through Abraham, separated unto himself a people, a nation. That was the only nation that was formed by God. And their purpose was to reveal God to the earth, That's what they were supposed to do, reveal the mercy and the grace of God to the earth. They were supposed to show everybody else what an amazing God that they had. That was his purpose for them as a people. And so you had the Jews and the Gentiles. But when Jesus came, he created a whole new people group called the Church of the Living God. We have our own culture We have our own vocabulary. We have our own customs and traditions. Like any other people group on the face of the earth, the church is unique, and it's individual, and it's its own people group. And so back in the day, back in the first century, when people would get saved, either Jews would get saved or the Gentiles would get saved. Theophilus was a Gentile. And um, so when he got saved, he you get transplanted out of one culture into another one and you need to be sure you need to be sure of what you're doing because we belong to a culture we belong to a people group that you can't really touch the founder right you can't really see the kingdom and that was one of the things that kind of tripped everybody up in the Gospels, because Jesus wasn't what they expected. They expected a ruler to come in and rescue them from Rome, and they got someone born in a manger <laughs> who never really showed any political clout at all, who freed us from our sin. So we belong to a nation that doesn't even exist naturally. Or geographically and so he wanted theophilus to be certain of the truths that he was taught you know why because culture is going to come at you and tell you that's a lie especially now and that's why it's so prevalent for us today now to be certain of the truths that we've been taught because culture is going to come at us from every side and say that's not true That is not true. Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. There are many paths to God. Isn't that what culture says? So culture is going to come at us even now, even today, and tell us what you believe, what they wrote in this book 2,000 years ago and beyond, is just old wives' tales. Jesus never lived, and that wasn't true. You don't need him. So that's why we need to be certain of the truths that we've been told Because when we're not certain, what are you going to do? You're going to turn back. How many people do you know that mm, lost sight of the truth and turned back? And that's not who we want to be and that's not who we are. So that was Luke's purpose in writing this book. So that Theophilus could be certain of the things that he was taught. God is faithful. And God fulfills his promises. Many people set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. And he was talking about the first coming of Christ. And you know, there's a second coming. And we can be just as certain that since God was faithful with the first coming, he's going to be faithful with the second coming. You know, there were 360 some odd promises in the Old Testament about the first coming of Christ. You know, there's over 500 references and promises to the second coming of christ and I, I know we talk about it all the time we're living in the last days and you can see the signs of the times and and all the different you know end time books i've been studying the book of daniel actually to maybe do a series next year sometime on the book of daniel and it's very fascinating but i was reading at, how many of you know who rick Renner is he has this little email that he sends out every day called the Sparkling Gems, and he deals with a different verse in the Greek uh, every day. And he was dealing it in Peter when he talks about the second coming of Christ. And actually, you know what is the most prevalent sign of his coming? Is the manifested presence of God. And I can't remember which verse it was now. If I if I had time, I would look it up. Maybe we'll talk about it later, but... Um, the the way that the Greek paints the picture is that his presence will be so tangible that you'll think he's already here. That was tonight. (laughs) That's been so prevalent in our services. Why? It's not going to be a culture shock to our system when Jesus sounds that trumpet and he comes back because we're going to be so immersed in his presence already. But he is coming again, and we need to be certain that he is coming again. And we're not just talking about history tonight. We want to learn how to live history. We want to be living history lessons. Right? And I love something that Pastor Michael shared Sunday. First service, I think you said it a lot more than second, but that you're not just supposed to share the gospel, you're supposed to live the gospel. You're not supposed to just share the good news, you're supposed to live the good news. And so as we study this, I want us to take home some of these things. As we read this, take home, how can I live the good news? How can I live the Christmas story? Because there's always, always, always something we can apply to our lives. And so I want to go to verse 5. And this is the part about John and Zechariah. It says, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive. And they were both very old. You know, one translation calls them well-stricken in years. That one's my favorite. (laughs) They were well-stricken in years. How would you like the Bible to describe you that way? I don't think any of us in here is well-stricken in years. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people. For the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled, God is faithful to his promise, at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them, and they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service was in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterwards, his wife Elizabeth who was well stricken in years, became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind is the Lord? You know, even now at 45, if I got pregnant, I would not be saying, how kind is the Lord? I'd be saying, oh, I'm too old for this. <laughs> how kind, I know, right? How kind is the Lord, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. And so I love this section of Scripture. I love it, I love it, I love it. You know why? Because at the end of the Old Testament, God went silent for 400 years. For 400 years, He didn't speak a word to anybody. Nothing. He gave His people the silent treatment. I don't know what they didn't know. (laughs) For 400 years, there was silence. And this was how he broke it. And I love when he broke it. Because Zechariah was in the temple serving the Lord. Putting the incense before the Lord on the altar in His presence, while the people outside were worshiping. This was at like the te- there were two times daily set aside to pray at the temple, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And this was during one of those times, and that's when God chose to break the silence when they were worshiping, when He was putting incense on the altar before Him, when they were crying out to Him. He responds to his people. And he came to renew his work on, the ma- on, on mankind, in us, for us. He broke that silence and said, "Zechariah, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. And I found that very interesting, especially in relation to the well-stricken in years, because it's my guess that they stopped praying for a baby years before. Right? Years before. And so sometimes we get discouraged, don't we? When we pray and like five minutes later, nothing happens. (laughs) Or one day later, we don't see an answer. Or a month later, there's nothing. And they prayed for a baby. She wanted a baby. And it wasn't just, oh, I want a baby. It's a desire of my heart. Back in the day, it was a disgrace if you couldn't have babies. And uh, I think that's why Luke was very clear that they were righteous and they obeyed all the commands of the Lord to show that they were good people. This wasn't a judgment of God on them. She wanted a baby. They wanted an heir. And it looked like God said no. Because they went through all of their years, all of their childbearing years, and couldn't even get pregnant. And then they had a lot of years until they hit well stricken. Because well stricken doesn't come right after the end of childbearing, well stricken is years down the road. Right? You guys aren't well stricken in years, you're still spry young spring chickens. Lots of years left to serve the Lord. But um, I saw you guys giving the look. (laughs) But God's timing is not always our timing. God didn't say no to them. It might have looked like it, but looks can be deceiving. God's timing is not always our timing. He's got a specific time in mind. And you know what? His plans... Are not just about us. It's not just to make us happy. <laughs> not just to make our life comfortable. It's not just about what we want and when we want it. His plans are always redemptive, He's always got redemptive thoughts in mind. Always. Our plans are not always redemptive. <laughs> Our plans are, I want what I want when I want it. <laughs> but he wasn't ready for John to be born when they, before they were well stricken in years. He, it wasn't the timing for John to be born when they were in their childbearing years. It wasn't time for John to be born until they were already well stricken. And that's when he chose to answer their prayer. And so his time is not always our timing. And So something, how we can act on this today, how this applies to us today, is for us to put a check on our motives and our desires. Am I selfish thinking? Am I just selfishly thinking about what I want, when I want it, because it's what I want? Or are we thinking about how what we want, the dreams even that he put inside of us, how that fits into the plan overall? Are we just selfish-minded? Are we just politically-minded? And I am patriotic. I am. I love my nation. But I don't love my nation at the cost of his plan. I love America. I believe America was founded on Christian principles for a God-ordained reason. We have sent missionaries and finances and done more to spread the gospel than almost any other nation in the world. God has used our nation. He has a purpose for it and has all along. But do I want to protect my nation more than I want souls to be saved? Do I want a so-and-so to be president or not president more than I want the plan of God to come to pass? What are we praying? What we want or what God wants? The right people were in office at the right time when Jesus was born. God called it the fullness of time. God called it the right time. And there weren't Christian leaders in office. Herod was an evil man. He beheaded John the Baptist. But that was the government that Jesus was born under, and God still worked in it. We don't have to be afraid of things that don't look the way we think they should look. It's okay. You know why? Our God is greater. He's stronger. He's bigger. He's just looking for people that are going to believe it and speak it and declare it. That's why I love that song. No weapon formed against me will prosper. You know, prosper doesn't mean financially succeed. It means it will not come to its intended end doesn't say no weapon shall be formed against you. It just says that when it's formed against you, it shall not prosper. And we were singing that tonight, and you know what I thought of? When Jesus would just walk through the crowds, he'd be preaching to them and declare, I am the Son of God, and they would get so angry at him and pick up stones and try to stone him. And he just walked away. You know why? Because no weapon formed against him could prosper. He wasn't afraid of the people trying to stone him because he knew the one that was protecting him. We don't have to be afraid of the enemy. We do not have to be afraid of anything that's coming against us. Why? Because we know the one who protects us. So we don't want to just think politically, we want to think redemptively. And that's where God was thinking with Zechariah and Elizabeth. He didn't say, No, I'm not going to answer your prayer. He said, in my time, for my purpose, I'm going to answer your prayer. And his word came to pass. That's what it said at the end of that section. So Zachariah went home, short time later, Elizabeth was pregnant, and she said, how kind is the Lord. God is good. Say, God is good. God is good. I can live the Christmas story. <laughs> I love it, too. I, w- I just want to point this out real quick when he said... Um, in verse 18, how can I be sure that these things are going to happen? How can I be sure these things are going to happen? Because I'm old and my wife's well stricken. <laughs> how can I be sure these things are going to happen? He was in doubt there. And I don't think it's by accident that the angel said, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months. Because God was not going to have any words of doubt stopping his plan from coming to pass on this earth. Like you're done. You can't say another word for nine months until this comes to pass. Zippa Ulipa. <laughs> so, you know, even seasoned Christians, because how old was Zechariah? He was well stricken in years. He he was faithful, the Bible called him faithful. He was serving God. Mature Christian. Even mature Christians still need to grow. There's still more to learn. There's still more of him to get. We still need to be hungry. We don't know it all. We still need to trust. Even mature Christians. We want to walk away with that. And one of the, the best things that I like about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they're an example to us that even when it looks like God's saying no, They still served God faithfully. There was no bitterness evident in their life at all. So we want to keep our hearts right. Even when it looks God is saying no. Even when it looks like our answer is being delayed. Even if it looks like God's not being faithful and answering our prayer, we still trust him. And we can still serve him with a pure heart. And I love God's abundant answer because they prayed for a baby and they got a prophet. Right? All they wanted was a little baby, and they got the forerunner to the Messiah. How cool is God? (laughs) That is so cool. We think so small. We think so small. Let's read about Mary real quick. Um, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee. And let me just say, humble beginnings here, because Nazareth... Was not anywhere special. Nazareth in Galilee was like a despised little city. Um, it was like Pittsburgh, you know. No. <laughs> So, no, it, was, it, it really was. It was a despised city. It was a disrespected town. You would say it was out in the sticks somewhere, out in the boondocks. It's out in the country. You know, even when they went to Nathaniel and said, Please come. You've you got to meet this guy. You've got to come see Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Pittsburgh? I mean Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the stigma that was on the city of Nazareth. And the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was was birthed to a couple in Nazareth. That's where God found Mary. Mary, it says she was a virgin named Mary, engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. Mary was between 12 and 14 years old. Allie, that is Allie's age. That is my daughter's age. Now, if she came to me and said, Mom, an angel appeared to me. Said, I'm going to have a baby. He's going to be the son of God. and <laughs> He's going to do all these things. And I haven't slept with a man. Allie wouldn't even know what that would mean. <laughs> She'd be like, what? I don't even know what that means. Back in the day, they got married that young. So they all knew what that meant. But um, that's Allie's age. So picture my daughter for a minute. That's who the angel's talking to. An innocent virgin, which shows that she valued moral and faithfulness and integrity and character because she was a virgin. That was v- They're very specific about that. Um, the angel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed... Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, How will this happen? I'm a virgin. And you know what? That sounds similar to what Zechariah said. And he didn't make Mary mute for nine months because she wasn't doubting. She wasn't looking for assurance. She wasn't looking for a sign. Mary was a woman. She was looking for details. (laughs) Mary just wanted to know the plan. All right, I got it, Lord. So what's what's your plan? I kind of know the logistics of this. I haven't been with anybody. Uh... Well, I'm sure you have a plan, so what do you think you're going to do here? Can't you just clue me in? So Mary was looking for details. She was not in doubt. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel said, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he'll be called the Son of God. Well, that explains everything. (laughs) Now, if the angel told me that, I would have no idea What he was talking about. And I'm sure Mary was still confused and disturbed. I don't think that changed. All right, Lord, could you give me some detail? Give me the plan. All right, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and he's going to overshadow you, and then you're going to have a baby. Oh, yeah, it's clear. Clear as crystal. I got it now. (laughs) Wow. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say, She was barren. But she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of the Lord will never fail. God is faithful to his promise. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left. And we could have just stopped with Mary responded. Because that's what we're supposed to do. When the word of the Lord comes to us, it should say, Tony responded. Mike responded. Miriam responded. We have a response. When the word of the Lord comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, when we read his, thing, his word and his instructions to us in his word, it should just be, I responded. Even when I don't understand, yes, Lord. I have no idea how that's going to happen. I have no idea what the plan is. But you know what? I trust you. Yes, Lord. That's our response. That's how we can live the Christmas story, by being just like Mary. Are we going to get pregnant with a baby at 13? No. As a virgin and deliver the Son of God into the earth? No. But we can be like Mary and be a carrier of God to the earth. We can be like Mary and say, whatever your plan is for me, yes, Lord, I will do it. I will think redemptively. I will be all about your plan. And that wasn't a light thing that Mary did, because what she was facing was a lifetime of scorn for being an unwed mother. She was engaged, actually betrothed to to Joseph. There were two-part process back then. They became betrothed which was a legal binding agreement, but they didn't actually get married until a year later. So it was somewhere between betrothed and married that all of this happened to Mary. And we don't see Joseph's side of the story here, Matthew tells it. We only see Mary's side of the story here. But she was betrothed to him, but she was unwed. They hadn't had any kind of sex at that point. There was no knowing anything physically, intimately about each other. She was a virgin. And when she said yes to the plan of God, she said yes to the potential for a lifetime of shame and persecution. Nazareth had maybe 500 people in it. So you know, the smaller the place, the more that everybody knows everybody. And everybody knows your business. <laughs> and everybody wants to be in your business. <laughs> so there was no escaping that. So when she said yes to God, she said yes to the shame. She said yes to the persecution. She said yes to all of that negativity, That being scorned by her neighbors and her family. I wouldn't believe Allie if she came to me and told me this. You think her aunts and uncles? Oh, sure, sure. The Holy Spirit did that to you. <laughs> Lock her up. <laughs> Put her on some medicine for schizophrenia or something. She, Yeah, right. We go with, we'll go with that one. We'll go with that one. She was willing to withstand the public scorn that came with the, the plan of God. And when we stand up for, especially in this day and age, the truth of the word of God and the plan of God and the will of God. There is scorn and there is shame and there is persecution that comes on us from culture. Are we willing to say yes to that? Are we willing to be Mary and say, yes, Lord, let everything you have said about me come to pass? It was a big deal what she was saying yes to. But one other thing that I love about Mary is it's the opposite of Zechariah's story. She wasn't in the temple. There was no one outside her house praying. doesn't even say she was praying. God just picked her. Just out of nowhere appeared to her and said, here's your call. Here's your assignment. This is for you. We don't get to necessarily pick our assignment. We don't really get to pick it. But when it's God-breathed, he puts the desire in you. And it's a joy to say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. Even though leading up to saying yes, Lord, there's butterflies and you're a little nervous and sometimes you push back against it. Like when Pastor Daniel called us into his office and said, I'm out of here. You guys need to take the wheel. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. So that's bigger than anything that I ever really wanted. So we'll just pass over. You just pass over us to somebody else. But the more we prayed and the more we talked and got God's heart, there was just such a stirring and a desire to do it that you couldn't do anything but say, yes, Lord. He's so faithful. I love John fifteen sixteen. It says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you. So go. He chose us. He chose Mary. He just picked her out of the blue. So I love that he visits us when we're praying. You know, sometimes he visits us even when we're not. We need to get out of our little preconceived bubbles of when God can speak to us. He can absolutely speak to me in my quiet time in the morning. But he can also speak to me when my kids are being really loud in the back seat and annoying me, and I'm just like... He can still speak to us. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, God can speak to us. So let's let God out of his box, shall we? And then verses 39 through 56 are when Mary visits Elizabeth. We're going to skip over that part for now. I want to get to the birth of John the Baptist in 57. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, Everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. Could you imagine? (laughs) We were at the hospital alone. They took our baby away. They circumcised him. But this was their tradition. This was their custom. Jesus was born into the Jewish culture that was full of tradition and custom. You know, not all tradition is bad. Not all customs are bad. You don't need to throw the baby out with the bath water. Sometimes I think we get saved and we come into church and you just kind of want to throw everything out from the <laughs> away. No, that's all bad. That's well, not all bad. <laughs> and now when you're in the church for a while, sometimes you want to go out there and throw everything from in here away, especially if you got hurt at church. It's not all bad. So this was the custom of the day. They would all come. And I think they probably had an even bigger crowd because Zechariah couldn't speak for nine months. Okay, now the baby's born. Let's see what's going to happen now. What's going on? What's this sign going to look like now? So they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. Really? The crowd gets to pick the name. They wanted to name him Zechariah. Like, uh, where are their parents? I'd be like, you coming in and naming my kids for me. No, I don't think so. We're going to pick the name. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what they wanted his name to be, which always cracks me up because he wasn't deaf. He was just mute. He could still hear. He just couldn't talk. They're using gestures. What do you want his name to be? (laughs) Okay, Zechariah wasn't deaf, but so he motioned for a writing tablet. And to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. I love that his first words were praise. I just love that. He was just so thankful to be able to talk again. <laughs> Thank you for my voice. <laughs> His name is John. What? I mean, the crowd was shocked. When Elizabeth said they're going to name him John, the crowd was shocked. Why? Because it went against every custom of the day. When you had a boy, especially a firstborn son, oh, you honored somebody with the name. It was a grandfather, it was a father, it was an uncle. It was somebody of importance to you and to your family. And it was an honor and showed honor to the family to give a family name. So they were really dishonoring their family when they honored God. They went against everything that was custom, everything that was comfortable, everything that looked right in the eyes of man. And they said, nope, His name is John. Are we willing to go against everything that is custom? Are we willing to go against everything that is custom? To have no sacred cows. But we always do four songs in worship. (laughs) Well, what if the Holy Spirit moves and we don't get past the first song? Oh, worship's always first. Well, what if you come in one day and we teach first? Will you be fidgeting in your seats? Joe Seaman would be excited. That's the way he wants it, man. He comes to hear the word in first service and then stays for worship the second service because he doesn't, he likes to change it up. We might just skip the greeting time altogether. (gasps) Duh! (laughs) And those are little things. Those are little things. I mean, they really are meaningless things. But there are things of value that we have to look at and say, "Mm, are we willing to still call this okay? Are we willing to go against custom? You know, Daniel let, he let Nebuchadnezzar name him after a god, after a pagan god, and he let him call him that. He answered to Belteshazzar, which was the name of one of their gods. We would call him a backslidden heathen. You're compromising. You know what his job was? He was a magician, he was an astrologer. That was his job. Oh, he would be excommunicated from the church. <laughs> All right, we'll go into that when I teach on Daniel. We need to see things from God's perspective. And God wanted him called John. I don't even really know why. If it was for no other reason than to get him out of custom and tradition, it was okay. How many of you, it was hard for you to raise your hands when you came into a Pentecostal church? <laughs> Mike Mike went. <laughs> and then to dance oh, or to shout you don't do that in church. You know, every act of worship is flesh. It's a choice, it's a decision to express through the flesh what you sense in your heart, whether it's Flags, raising your hands, singing, speaking. It's not flesh. Sanctified flesh when your motive is, I'm going to worship him with all of my heart and might and strength. But this was difficult at one time. raising our hands, because it wasn't our custom) <coughs> We got to get past some of these things to just the heart of it. The heart for John and El- er, Zechariah and Elizabeth was obedience to God, no matter what. And that's what we need to get to: obedience to God, no matter what. When John was born, they went not get custom, and that was okay. And in verses 67 through 80, we're wrapping up because it's past time. It's Zechariah's prophecy. It's his praise to God. He prophesies about Jesus. In verse 76, he says, And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And he started to just speak the word of God over him. It's a good thing to speak the word of God over your kids. It's a good thing to declare it. It's a good thing to agree with go- what God has said over you, over your wife, over your kids, over your family. confirms it. It cements it. And John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. And if you're in a wilderness time, it's OK. Jesus went into the wilderness. Moses was in the wilderness. John lived in the wilderness. The apostle Paul got saved and then went away for about eight years. It's okay. You're allowed. It's good. God hasn't forgotten you. You're just hidden till the proper time when it's time. God has a timing to things. So what do we want to remember from tonight? That we want to live the Christmas story. We want to be Zechariah and Elizabeth in that we don't get bitter when it looks like God's not answering our prayers. We trust that he's got a plan. It's not all about us. It's about his redemptive plan. And if you don't see it and you feel yourself starting to get bitter, you just say, Father, show me. You've got to show me here. You're going to show me your plan. Show me how this fits into your redemptive plan because my life is not just about me. We want to be Mary that even what we don't understand that we can say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I trust your plan. I am willing to do whatever it takes to be used by you. And we can all be used by him. Mary didn't have credentials. She didn't have a degree. She didn't have a pedigree. She lived in an unforsaken, God-forsaken town out in the middle of nowhere. And God used her to do one of the greatest things ever in birthing the Son of God. He'll use you. He just needs an empty vessel that he can pour himself into so that he can pour himself out. And we are all called to be carriers of the Son of God. We're not going to do it physically like Mary did. We're not going to give birth to a physical baby. But the gifts and the talents that he's put on the inside of you are what he's going to use for you to carry him to the world. If that looks like gift wrapping at the mall, if that looks like going over to McGuffey and talking to those kids, if that looks like baking a pie and giving it to your neighbors, if that looks like sending cards or letters to people that you know and love, you let him use you to carry his presence and his love to this world. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for the Christmas story and what we've learned tonight from the prequel of that you are faithful and you always fulfill your promises. Father, I pray that as we leave, we'll be built up in that faith that to trust you, to keep standing, to keep believing, even when it looks like you're not moving, even when we can't see anything, even when we don't understand and I just pray that you would just ingrain into us your purpose Father light a fire on the inside to take your presence out there to everyone who doesn't know you light that fire in us to just be used to carry you to this lost and dying world in Jesus name Amen 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 well go live the Christmas story (laughs)